uh, before uh, you start the timer, that's wrong, anyhow, um, can you, uh, we, John, Pastor John just came up and said he missed the catechism question and answer for this week, and so I would like to do that, and so if, uh, Tim, do you have that slide? If not, I will do it at the end of service, because I don't want us to forget, and of course, we're leaning into that as we teach our kids and teach ourselves what God has called us to. Here we go, question number five, so week five of the New City Catechism. I'm going to ask a question. I want you to read the answer with me, please. So what else did God create? God created all things by his powerful word, and all his creation was very good. Everything flourished under his loving rule. All right, so we've been working our way from, you know, what is, uh, who are we, and how are we made, and who is God, and, and, and what else has God made, obviously, as we get there now. And all of these that we start on Sunday, we memorize, we do together on Wednesdays, all so we can help disciple our children, raise families, reach the next generation of those of faith. And so if you would, turn to Micah chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you, on the pew, on the chairs in front of you. And if you borrow a Bible, I'll give you the cheat. It is page 777. I didn't plan that out, but there you go. That's nice and easy. Every week, we ask you, take notes. Be faithful to take notes during any message and, and write down things that stand out to you. Write down questions. And so over the summer, we started doing this, what is one takeaway that you have today from the message? And we're going to give you a moment to do that at the end of the message to share with somebody sitting next to you, maybe somebody in your family, maybe someone else you don't know, but just what is one takeaway from the message today? So let me set the context in the kind of the, the book of Micah. So Micah exists uh, back right after Israel had been conquered, the northern kingdom had fallen, and then the southern kingdom has, was starting to be conquered. Now, God is sending in, literally sending in armies to conquer the people of God in response to their unwillingness to repent and follow him. Just to summarize Israel and, and Judah's struggles, they wanted to be more like the world that they lived in than they wanted to be like God's people. That that piece of the puzzle has plagued them since they entered into the land God gave them. Because of that, they, they said, let us have a king like the nations around us, and, and let us have this, and, and God says, that's not how I've created you to be, and they, that's okay, we want a king like the nations, and so they never lose this idea of wanting to be like the world they live in. And so God sends prophets, God sends leaders, and some of the kings are faithful in the southern kingdom, most are not. None of the kings in the northern kingdom are faithful. And so they go further and further into idolatry. So God sends the Assyrians in. They conquer Israel. They conquer a lot of Judah. And we're down to this place where Jerusalem and some of the surrounding areas around Jerusalem are all that's left of the southern kingdom. Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries who live at the same time and are speaking to the same group of people. We did uh, we worked all the way through the book of Isaiah about four years ago. For, uh, took us about a year, year and a half. Same group of people, same conversations, same time period. And so today's context is, is this, that God is now sending the prophet Micah to speak to, is, or to Judah's leaders, to Jerusalem's leaders. And he's calling them out for what they've done wrong. But the part of this message that's important is that we too are accountable for truth versus lies. You with me? doesn't matter if we have false teachers. It matters that we are responsible to understand and know the truth. God has given us his word so that we would understand and know the truth. So here's a main idea for today. Pursuing false gospels. God judges all our sin, including when we are led astray by sinful leaders. We as followers of Jesus are accountable to know right and wrong. So that's a challenge, right? Well, but the guy on TV or the guy on stage or the whatever, but he says this, and it sounded good, and he said it in a church. 
See, we're accountable to know what is truth. We're accountable to know what is false. And so in this book of Micah, there are these three judgments and salvations, right? These three sections that proclaim judgment and then salvation. We're going to do the middle one of the three. And so the judgment is going to be on the leadership, but also the people for following them. So Micah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, And I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? So God's not serious at all at this moment, right? So now he begins, he, so this, this message, this salvation, or this judgment and salvation starts off aimed at the leaders and how they are abusing or, or ta- uh, um, abusing their positions or abusing the people by what they're doing. And we're going to see that play out pretty quickly. But I want to catch this one line that they have incredibly corrupt leaders who hate the good and love the evil. That's the exact opposite of what God has called them to. In Psalm 97, it says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil, right? Like, that's the exact opposite. That we are called to hate evil and love good. And it says, You who hate the good and love evil. So that's how upside down we're beginning this passage. Verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. God's judgment. God will stop listening to all of them because of this. Because of their corruption. Because of their falsehood. Because of their misleading and abusing the people. God says, I will take all of it away from you. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the peoples who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. So as he begins to call out now the false prophets, prophets translate more today to preachers in a church, pastors in a church who are to tell you what God is saying, right? There's a, that's kind of the modern day parallel. And this time the prophets were calling the people towards repentance, which pastors should be doing, right? We should be kind of showing what holiness is and, and then anything outside of that would be sin and calling us to repentance, calling us towards holiness in Christ. That we should be proclaiming the gospel as the power to follow Jesus. We talk about ourselves as a gospel-centered church. We know that that everything centers on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that Jesus has provided a way that we can follow him. And so when when we see these other kind of teachers, these false prophets here, here's what we see them doing. They declare peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So here's the deal. If you come and you bring money to them, you bring them food and an offering and money, they're going to give you a good prophecy. They're going to give you a good message. They're going to tell you how much God loves you and how good you're doing. But if you come and you don't bring something to them or don't bring what they want, then they're going to tell you really bad things are going to happen. You see the abuse of power and position here. And they're doing it for gain. They're giving good news for pay and bad news when you don't pay. Verse 6. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers will be disgraced. The diviners put to shame. They shall cover. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. God speaking is going away. God revealing himself to the prophets is leaving them because they've become false prophets. Verse 8, now this is Micah speaking here about himself. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Note the distinction here. So there are false prophets 
who will give you a great message. God says he wants all good things for you, Chris, because you paid me this. But over here, no, Stephanie, God, God's got horrible things for you because you didn't bring something with you. You with me? Love you, Stephanie. Sorry. All right. So, but Micah says, listen, he's going to take the power. He's going to strip these false prophets. But I stand in power. He says, I stand in the spirit. Note the distinction. He says, I stand filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. Here's the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet. You see, the true prophet is going to call out sin in the community of faith. Not just call out sin in the, the people out there, oh, the bad world, but no, sin in the church. So that we can strive together for holiness in Christ. You see, the only thing that's going to change us or, or move us closer to Jesus is repentance of sin. To set aside those things that are contrary to God. To set aside and, and run from those things that bring death to our life, to our faith. And to lean into Jesus. You, you can't draw nearer to Jesus just on love. Yes, it's because of his love. Yes, because of his grace. Yes, because of his sacrifice. But it cost him everything. So as Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined the phrase, so your grace can't be cheap. It's free to you, but it cost Christ everything. So turn and live for him. So Micah says, I'm good. God's stripping you of your power. The distinction is he's calling the sin out in the community of, the, of, the, of, the community of faith, the people of God. Verse 9, he says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, and make crooked all that is straight. Who build Zion or Jerusalem with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. We're God's people. Clearly it's going to be good. We're Americans. Clearly God loves us. Listen to what it says. Heads give justice for a uh, judgment for a bribe. The priests teach for a price. The prophets practice divination for money. See their desires there? Listen to the message. God is with us. No harm will come to us. I'm going to break this down a little bit. I want, to, I want to look at that setting. I want you to see their message and their motivation. I want you to see what they're doing. Then I want to give some modern day examples. I'm going to touch a lot of nerves today. We're going to free up seats for guests next week. We'll just look at it that way, right? So here it is. Here's their message and motivation. God is calling out the leadership of Judah for their corruption and lies. They are motivated by money and power and proclaim messages based on pe what people want to hear for a price. We share some common problems today. Next slide. Here's one modern-day version of that. Live your truth, see Micah 3.2. Culture today approves of all lifestyles and supports all types of evil, unless you disagree, right? We are taught to celebrate lifestyles that oppose God and to champion their rights to do so. Many choose churches based on the approval of their current lifestyle, well, I go over here because they don't want to tell me to change. I can go live my truth, live my best life. That is our modern day, one modern day version of that. Next slide. Prosperity doctrine, probably the most destructive thing in American Christianity, and it is ruining other nations like the continent of Africa. is being destroyed by American prosperity doctrine. So the teachings of Joel Osteen, Bethel Church, promise that God wants you to be rich, healthy, and happy, and even call poverty a sin. Note, example coming on that. Many spend their lives pursuing the very things Jesus said to deny in this life. By that definition, Jesus was sinful. That's a problem. But this is what floods Instagram and Facebook. By us. Because of course God wants me to be totally happy 
and so wealthy and perfectly healthy. But what about if we're not? Is that on us? Or is that just believing a lie? Next slide. Ends justify the means. See Micah 3, 9. Politicians of both parties compromise any value to get elected, say anything to run an opponent down, and convince you it's for your best. And then Christians line up to support them and join in the sin that gets them elected. Pick a candidate. I don't even care. We're in that season now where they're starting to trash one another. Right now, it's trashing the people on the same squad. They wear the same jersey that eventually they're going to buddy up with when somebody gets the nod, right? Then they're going to trash the other side. Well, they always trash the other side. And if you turn on this news channel, they hammer this side. And if you turn on this news channel, they hammer this side. It's just that. And somehow, that has become one of the greatest idolatries in American Christianity, is politics. We can vote in our next savior and solution. I want you to go back now. I want you to go back in time. We're going to go back 26, 700 years now to Micah and these false leaders who will tell you what you want for a price and will tell you bad things if you don't obey, pay, and give them power. Sound familiar? Let's do it. Verse 12. Therefore, because you... Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Jerusalem, you're going to be destroyed. That's what God says. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Jerusalem, all of you, the people and the teachers, are going to be destroyed. See, the people are being judged alongside the leaders because the people are following lies. You see, we don't just get to blame it. Now, I think there's an extra level of judgment and blame on false prophets and greedy priests and judges who take a bribe. Let's just say there's, there's, there's an extra dose of God's judgment for them. But what I want us to see today, because most of us are not judges, politicians, governors, senators, prophets, or priests. Fair? Because of that, I want you to see this part. All of them are being judged. All of them pay the penalty because they're all being misled. Or they're joining in willingly. Or they're ignoring what else God has said. See, God's got the prophet Micah who is saying what God is, is telling him to say. He is proclaiming that culture is headed the wrong way. Not a popular message, just for the record. There's a distinction in this size church who will talk a lot about sin and holiness. And another church who doesn't, maybe. Maybe there's other reasons, but it's easier to sell the gospel with God wants you to be wealthy, happy, healthy, rather than God wants you to repent of your sin. There's a different response to that. There's a different call to living that way. And when they don't, and when they accept the false teachers and they pay the bribes, you got to understand, someone's paying the bribe to the judge. Someone's paying the prophet and the priest. So they're complicit and, they, and they're responsible for knowing the truth. So let's look at some, kind of some, some versions of that. So this Micah 12 prophecy is that Jerusalem, all the people and leaders together co combined are going to be destroyed because of the sin of the community. Now, our elders wrestled with, our elders wrestled with a topic like this um, over the last year. It got played out and we see it most in church on Sundays in worship. And we just made the decision to abstain from certain bands or abstain from certain labels of music uh, because, sadly, it's one of the biggest labels. But we made the decision to not do Bethel music. And, and we got a lot of pushback, right? A lot of people, why would we not do that? Why would we not judge a song by its song, right? Because some songs... Let's just be honest, have some good lyrics in them that's written there. But I know when I hear a song that I like, I'll chase it back to who did it and what else did they do, because I like it. So I'm going to follow it down and spend my time in Apple Music trying to figure out who else does that or, or Spotify or whatever you use, right? And see, it's that move right there that takes you to the rest of it. So yes, you can judge a song on its own merit, or you could judge the person who writes it. 
And so many use the Bethel music. Joel Osteen is everywhere. So those are the two people we named. And if you have been a part of Generations or know anything about us, almost never name names. We just teach the truth and let the, the, the lie be obvious. But there's so much, this is so prevalent in our culture today that it just has to be said. And so our elders made this decision, and I'm going to walk you through a couple things. And I, I know we've had lots of dialogue around this, but I want to I show you a couple things right Like You can turn to Bethel Church's website today, the people who produce the music, and you'll hear this. You'll, or you'll read this. Excuse me. We are believing the Lord for jobs and better jobs, raises and bonuses. I could preach this, right? Woo. Okay, right? Bonuses and benefits, sales and commissions, favorable settlements, estates and inheritance, interest and income, rebates and returns, checks in the mail, gifts and surprises, finding money. Oh. That I may have more than enough to give to the kingdom of God. Let's pray we make more so you can give more. You just find money. You put on those pants you haven't worn in a while. Like, oh, there's a $100 bill. Praise Jesus. I can give more. Listen, sometimes we need that money. Don't get me wrong. That's the thrust of an offering prayer. They pray. They're four. I'm going to quote two of them. So we're talking like every other Sunday you're hearing this. And the other ones are equal to it. Now, Matthew 6, 24 says this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. Because where your heart is, your life will follow. This is the one that makes me sick. There's the next one. This is right off, same website. This is just a couple readings down. So Lord, we ask you for repentance from poverty. We're repenting of not having enough money. That's what they're asking you to say. We're repenting of poverty, small thinking, and envy, courage to recognize opportunities and make wealth. This is something they recite in church every week. In Luke 9, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? All that they're praying will happen will die with them. They're living for this world. And the hook is, we're praying for you to be rich so that you will give us more. In fact, we'll do it in reverse. Why don't you just give us more and God will bless you? And then they'll randomly quote Malachi. To tithe the Lord and see if he doesn't give you generously, pressed down, shaken up, more than you need. They will just rip a verse out of its context so that you will give. Giving is a part of Christian life. It's a part of our discipleship. As Pastor John said earlier, it's learning to trust God to give first to him and live on what's left. Right? In fact, I think those of us who have been around for a minute would tell you, Tithe first, save an additional 10%, and live on 80, right? But it's a discipline to trust God with what God has given you. It is not something to be abused or to make promises to you. So again, I want you to go back 2,700 years. I want you to hear these words and understand they haven't changed much in three millennia. So what do we do with all this? Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Latter days is looking towards eternity, when Christ returns and reigns. It says that's when we will see this come to pass. Verse 2. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he, he, God, or he, the Lord, Jesus, may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He says when we get these false leaders out of the way and Jesus returns, Jesus will lead us. He will teach us. He will speak. Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples. That's not a judge like... That's not a judge like, like who's right, who's wrong, but rather counsel and lead. It's, it's written a little different. He shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. It's that. 
We should take the things we don't understand and we'll get us on the same page. And they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, so no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Those first four verses, Micah 4, 1 through 4, are the same exact word-for-word words that Micah's contemporary Isaiah is told to speak by God as well. See Isaiah chapter 2, the first three verses of it are these four verses. God is saying this on two fronts to the people. He's saying, listen, your health, your wellness, your happiness, all of that will come eternally. In the meantime, there's a bit of a struggle in this life. In the meantime, it's about denying yourself being a light to the world and looking towards eternity. That you don't get to live any way you want to live, you are to live towards Christ. That you don't get to be anything you want to be, you are to be what God has created you to be. And that it isn't about your wealth or your happiness, you will, you will have that forever. It's about living, even sacrificially, for Jesus today. Verse 5, he takes it out of what happens in eternity, comes back. He says, for all the peoples walk, that's present tense, each in the name of its own God. In other words, they walk and follow their idols. But, now he goes back to the future, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So if we're being called out of the idolatry of today to anticipate the blessing eternally, then you can see the problems in our political idolatry or live your best life, or live your truth, and prosperity gospel. Which is no gospel at all. Prosperity doctrine is a better way of saying it. Because we're denied this life. We're to look towards an eternal life. And then we're to be here, and, and live through this, because if that was it, then God would just take us when we come to faith. Because then we could have all those things. We'd, be, we'd have the riches of His kingdom. We'd have a new body, perfect health. Joy, happiness, all of it. But we're called to stay here. Remember the Revelation series. That we are called to endure here for the sake of the gospel. Our purpose here is to be a light to a dark world. Verse 6, In that day declares the word, the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. Let's pause there for a second. God promises not only to make right what is wrong now, but he also promises to keep a remnant, right? To, to bring those who endure for the sake of the gospel with him, right? So he's going to level Jerusalem. That was the, the end of chapter 3. He's going to destroy all of Jerusalem and all the people and all the false teachers. But he's going to provide a remnant, a group that are faithful, who will live on and endure for the sake of the truth of God. So let's read that again, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. He says, in the end, those who have been faithful will endure. Those who give their lives for the gospel, those who remain faithful to the gospel, they will endure, they will not be judged for the sins of the falsehoods of these leaders in the community. He says, in fact, I will preserve them that they may keep the truth of the gospel present in the earth. And then when I will get them across the finish line, this promise is for a remnant in Jerusalem. When they are conquered, that some who are faithful when they go to Babylon, will be kept. We know those stories, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see faithful people that are taken by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, who are the, which, which is the fulfillment, by the way, of this prophecy in Micah, that Babylon will come and conquer them. And we see a small remnant of faithful, true people. We see them eventually, about 70, 80 years later, start to return back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? Those faithful ones that God calls back to rebuild. We also know that a remnant of the church is always preserved. God always keeps the true gospel present, no matter how far away 
whether it be the church in America, the church worldwide, drifts away from truth. God keeps the truth present. Jesus keeps the truth of his gospel here. It is our job to discern that truth. It is our job to deny ourselves and live towards that truth and and not buy into the hype. God promises he preserves the truth. So over the next several verses, there are four oracles or words from God aimed at the people. We're going to do them really quick. The first one is verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So oracle number one, you will lose your past godliness, but a future generation will gain it back. Again, oracle number two. So verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. The Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. For now you will suffer, like a, and the image he gives is a, like a woman in labor. You're going to be conquered by Babylon Painful, but it will not last forever. God will bring some back. Here's the third one, verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron. This is an image of an ox with iron horns. And he says, And I will make your hooves bronze. And you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and they shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This image of an ox with unique strength. Oxes would come in and trample out the grain, and it would help them. And you've heard this term, separate the wheat from the chaff, right? It's always a scriptural image of separating true believers from false believers. You separate the wheat from the chaff. And he's saying that this conquering is going to be like this strong ox that's going to come in and trample down the grain. It's going to separate who is really, truly living for God and those who are not. The fourth one is Micah 5.1. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Seize is laid against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, oracle number four is that the kings of Israel and Judah will be humiliated and conquered. And it's a unique one because it doesn't really have a kind of a hopeful component to it. It's just the judgment. The first three had a little bit of hope, like the child, like the woman in labor, but it, it, it'll be painful, but it won't last forever, right? There's that little bit of hope. But this fourth oracle, this fourth, fourth statement from God or message from God is all about setting up what comes next, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now you're probably picking this up, but this is a promise about Christ to come, that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, fulfilled 700-ish years later. You see, the gospel message is one that, that begins as sin enters into human history. It begins when humanity disobeys God, and, and God is actually the first one to preach the gospel, proclaiming that Jesus will come and he will crush Satan's head. He will have victory over Satan's sin and death, even though there will be this momentary apparent victory of Christ's death. See, Jesus comes and enters into the world. He was born in Bethlehem to fulfill Micah 5.2. And then he is raised and, and, and goes into ministry. He lives a sinless life. He goes and proclaims the kingdom of God. He actually lives a life in poverty, much to the discontent of the prosperity doctrine folks. He actually lives a life of poverty, surrendering everything and always glorifying God. So you can glorify God in poverty because Jesus did. And so Jesus lives this sinless life, the one that you and I never live, the one that you and I, even knowing better, choose not to live. If you're a guest here, we like to say this a lot, we know we're not perfect, for sure. In fact, I think we're more aware of our sin. We know we deserve judgment. We understand that it is by grace that Jesus gave his life for us. So Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who is fully God and and fully man, goes and gives his life as a ransom for us because of the mound of debt of sin that we have, that we deserve the judgment for. Jesus gives his life so that 
we have an opportunity to be in Christ, to be in relationship, sons and daughters of God. And so he dies on a cross, is buried in a grave, and resurrects again to new life, having victory over Satan, sin, and death. And then he commissions his church to be that witness that he is a living God, that he is God who is alive, not a guy who died on a cross. The cross is incredibly important, but without the resurrection, we're still in our sin. See, the resurrection is the new life given to us and the call to live in repentance towards God. And it gives us the calling to live not for this world, but for eternity to come. Not with our head in the clouds, with our head in the game here, that we're here for a purpose. That we live here so that others will see Jesus in our lives. Not in our wealth, not in our health, not in our happiness, but see Christ in our lives. Not in us making up our own truth or finding the ends that justify the means, but in us living as Christ lived. And that's our calling. That's the gospel. We talk about Jesus being our Savior and our Lord. Now, I'll buy the Savior part. But to proclaim Jesus as Savior means you have trusted in him that he has paid the penalty, the debt for your sin. But is he your Lord? Do you live daily to his ends and not your own? Is the discipleship of your children's faith more important than the college they go to? So that's Jesus' Savior and Lord. That means lordship, control, authority. That we lived to whatever ends that looks like. He wants to make us wealthy, great, we'll hit the lottery or whatever. He wants to make us poor and broke and send us to another country, whatever. We live for our Lord. The gospel brings us to this place of full surrender to Jesus. Now, that's obviously not immediate. That's obviously not like you, you say a prayer and it's all changed. That's obviously what we strive towards every day in our discipleship and our growth. In 2 Peter, it says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you. Notice, you will be richly provided for, just look at what it is. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You make him Lord today and strive to that end. It says this, it says, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Be diligent to check yourself in your faith and not just assume because you were born here into the right family, went to the right school, went to the right church that you're a Christian. Be diligent to check yourself. To understand, are you truly living for Jesus? And then obviously, if you're not, to turn and live for Jesus. I'm going to restart at verse 2 where we talked about Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore, verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who was in labor has given birth. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people Israel. So Jesus is given to us as the promised Savior. Micah now returns to the false teachings. You will be judged by Babylon conquering you and displacing you. You'll be taken as captives into foreign nations. But God will provide a remnant that will return. Let's see how that plays out. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of of the name of the Lord, his God. Let's pause here really quick. Jesus will be their shepherd, not the corrupt leaders. Not the ones who preach falsehood for money. Jesus will be their shepherd. So correction number one, Jesus stands as our shepherd and God's strength, not in the power of telling you to live your best life now. Not in the power of telling you what you want to hear, but rather standing in the power of telling you the truth of God. That's Jesus. Jesus, our shepherd, tells you the truth given by God. Back in verse 4 in the middle. And they shall dwell secure, those who live that way, shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus will be their security, not their false, pros uh, false prophets of prosperity. So correction number two for us. Jesus is our security, not health, not wealth. Only Jesus brings security. Everything in this life dies with us. Nothing you can do to provide security outside of Christ. 
If you live long enough, you can provide a good income, a good education, a good kind of things. Nothing gives us security except Christ. Verse 5, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into the land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Talk about these national defense type ideas. And they were making alliances with other nations who don't worship God. And they were ended up following other nations, idols and things like that. And he says, that's not your security either. Modern day version politics aren't going to fix our problem. Jesus will be their peace, not their military or national might. Jesus will be their peace. Not this team or that team. Correction number three, Jesus is our peace. Our government and politicians of either party can never provide us with peace. Only Jesus. So how does this all play out for Jerusalem and Judah? Verse seven. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, a blessing to the people, in other words. Like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. He says that a remnant will be preserved. That remnant will be a blessing to the world. Now that is fulfilled in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah before the birth of Christ. Verse 8, and it says, And the remnant of Jacob, those who are faithful, shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears up in pieces, and there is none to deliver. The remnant will take God's truth to the nations. Not only will it provide the gospel to others, but also those who reject God will be judged. Right? That the true gospel will go out. That begins its fulfillment in Acts 8 and is living on through the church, the faithful church today. Verse 9, your hands shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. The Savior Jesus will defeat evil once and for all. That's fulfilled, beginning at the cross and ending in the consummation of all things, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, when Jesus rules and reigns. Cannot believe I did this in 45 minutes today. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? We, we hear this and, and we hear these false teachers even 2,700 years ago and we hear, we hear them today and they're saying the same things. They're as corrupt today as they've ever been. They hide under the banner of church or the title of pastor. But for the right amount of money, they'll give you a great message. And they'll tell you that God wants to bless whatever it is you're doing. And that God wants all the same things you want for your life. That there's no sacrifice, there's no sin. Jesus covered all that. We don't have to talk about that. And God says, I judge both the teachers, the leaders, the unjust judges, and the people who follow them. So what do we do with this today? Mature Christians, you are to know the truth from the lies. And you are called to teach the church how to find the truth in Scripture. That doesn't mean randomly proof-texting some verse that fits your, your, kind of your paradigm, but understanding how to mine out the meaning of a message, the meaning of a book, the meaning of Scripture. That the mature are called to disciple the younger or those less mature in their faith. So newer or unlearned Christians, you need to know that you are accountable to understand truth from lies and pursue the truth that you too are accountable. You can't just blame it on me or the guy on TV or somebody else. You're accountable to know the truth. We have every version of the Bible known to man at the touch of, at the fingertip, at the phone. And yet we are one of the most biblically illiterate generations of Christians on earth. And we're accountable for that. For those of you who are not believers yet, for those of you who don't wake up every day to pursue Jesus, or maybe those who've wandered away and need to hear this, coming to faith, living for the gospel, doesn't mean everything is going to get all better. It is all the best for you, and it plays out for sure the best. But hard days between here and there sometimes. Sometimes living for the gospel is the very thing that creates the struggle. 
Because living like the world is easy to do. But living for the Creator who created the world is not easy. The gospel is one of self-sacrifice, of self-denial, and living for Jesus. Parents and kids. We love having parents and kids together. Yes, they're rowdy. Yes, they'll cry. Yes, they make noises. That's okay. They learn how to worship when you worship. They learn how to take notes when you take notes. They learn how to pray when you teach them to pray. Kids and parents, do you do more than aim at belief in your children and rather disciple them to learn how to study Scripture for themselves? Do we disciple our kids how to find the truth of God in His Word for ourselves that we can seek and understand and learn and ask ourselves, is this message right or wrong? That's what we do for our kids. We are to disciple them to not just believe in Jesus, but know how to faithfully follow him. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. You came and sacrificed everything. And you call us to do the same. You don't call us to do more than you. You don't call us to do less than you. You call us to deny ourselves, to live for you and not this world, to not make this world our home, but to live as aliens, as foreigners, as non-citizens here because we are citizens of heaven. The hardest thing, of course, for us, Lord, is just living for something other than what we can touch. Living for a kingdom we're not yet fully understanding. But you teach us the way. You have faithful prophets who have given us the truth. Help us to learn that. Help us to understand your word. Help us as a church. May Generations Church be a church who teaches the church to understand scripture on their own, in their living rooms, on their vacations, with their kids, with their families, with their neighbors. May we understand this is the everyman job and not just me. May we all seek your truth in scripture, Lord. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to give you one minute, two minutes. To just turn to somebody next to you. If this is to your kids, to your spouse, to your friend, what is one takeaway, something actionable that you want to do this week because of something you heard today? Take a little bit for that. Maybe check your notes, read your notes, and then we will come back and do communion together. As we do each week, we 
we remind ourselves of the gospel we proclaim by participating in the Lord's Supper or communion. As we through scripture, we see Jesus sit with his disciples. <clears throat> and he gives them this, this symbol, this meal. And he gives them the meaning of it and he commands them to do it and to repeat it for all generations until we get to do it again with Jesus forever. And so he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He says, I'll take the suffering. I'll take the pain. I'll take the, the judgment of sin. I'll take all of that on me so that you can live forever as sons and daughters of God. I will take the suffering, my body broken so that you can be made whole. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. He then took the cup and he said, this cup is a, a covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sin. And he taught them that his death would cover the penalty, the suffering, the death will cover the penalty for the sins they have committed, we have committed. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So each week we say this, this is a symbol for the family, for those who are followers of Jesus. You don't have to necessarily be a member of this church, but part of a church that proclaims the same gospel as you heard today. He said, this is my body broken for you. It's for you who live in faith towards Jesus. Not for you if you have not made that decision or living that way. He says, my blood is a covenant with you for the forgiveness of your sins if you're not a follower of Jesus and that's not yet for you. We would love that to be for you. The pastors here would love to talk to you about that. So we just say, this is for you. And, and well, how do I know if that's me? Well, I always say, listen, if, you, if you've been baptized, that's like the first step of obedience, right? If you're living in repentance, you, you are repenting of sin when God calls you to it. Just in simplest terms for our kids, if you wake up every day and you figure out, okay, what is it Jesus wants me to do today? And that becomes primary. Then you're a follower of Jesus. So we're going to invite you, the elders, to come forward. The elders and their wives were serving today. We're going to ask that you would come and, and take the elements of communion and return to your seat. In the time that you get to get up and, and, and go receive the elements, would you be prayerfully considered if there is there someone you need to forgive? Is there something you need to repent of? Is there something that would stand in the way of you and receiving what God has for you today? We believe in the Reformed tradition that this is a means of grace, that this is a way that God strengthens us, that Jesus strengthens us through his death and his resurrection until we gather again. And so church, if you're going to take communion, would you come?